Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, let's see, it's Monday morning, and now I have a few minutes, maybe I can do the Parsha Center early in the week. Some people are writing me from Australia, where the earlier they get it, the better, which is interesting. Um, today's talk is being uh, sponsored by a friend of mine who's done before, David Feinkirch, uh from Odessa, as he told me, and uh, <laughs> from, his family's from near Vinitsa. That's where uh, the German military headquarters were in World War II. Wow. Um, and he wrote me the other day, but that's not fair. You know, he says, I know the borders of uh, Eastern Europe that are shifting all the time. Yeah, if you're from there, he's from Odessa. Okay. Uh, the average American or non-East European Jew doesn't know that stuff unless they take the trouble to follow it. Um, anyway, let's take a look for a few minutes at this week's Pasha, which of course is MR. Uh, I appreciate there were like one, I hope we'll have one extra sponsor show up this week because I'd like to do something for Log Bomber, but we'll see. Meanwhile, thank you, David Feinkirch. The, um, MR, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Um, elites, you have different types of elites uh, in different cultures. In this case, we're talking about Judaism, obviously. And it just strikes me that this, you have the Tershav, the Tershav the the Chumash and the Talmud. And each one is representative, especially in Pasha Samar, of, it strikes me, as a different kind of elite. And the Jewish religion had been around for a very long time, thousands and thousands of years. And it's an extremely rich and, and variegated and diversified tradition. <laughs> Therefore, it doesn't have a single model, it has models, multiple models. And one of the models is that, the models of the elites. The leadership, the elites, the top people, the guides. Um, to put it in simple terms, in the Chumash it's the coin, in the Gemara it's the scholars, the Talmachacham. Those are not identical. One is a hereditary elite, one is a uh, meritocracy elite. In English, the meritocratic elite. Uh, and that's just interesting, because one is associated when the Jews were in Eretz Yisrael, and the other is associated primarily when the Jews lost Eretz Yisrael. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't Kohanim today, I'm a Kohen, but it doesn't mean that there weren't Tamil back in the time of um, the Chumash and the Tanakh and, and all that by Shani, but you don't see them. In other words, they're there, but you have to look hard. They don't. The sources don't tell us much about it, which is why uh, when you read uh, Josephus and that sort of thing in the Bayashani, uh you read about these hereditary types of elites, Taka Kohanim, like the Maccabees and the other families, that ran the show, that drove the Haredi historians crazy. I'm talking about the Doris Rishonim and Victor Miller and so forth. And they will take the trouble to rewrite Josephus to point out, notice the Chacham are there, the meritocracy is there, um, it's just that Josephus was biased, Philo was biased. Uh, it's a very complicated subject. But there's no question that Parsha Zemmor, this week's Parsha, is a Parsha of Kohanim and hereditary elites. 
So the way it's set up in the Chumash is the highest thing is a coin. No, the coin got all, a coin got all, and it's reflected through all kinds of um, requirements that are associated with a certain type of public elite who are supposed to be there on parade. The public's supposed to go to the base of Migdash, to Mishkan, and you see the Kohanim. So therefore, you have these funny rules that anybody who's got a blemish can't be a coin and can't serve and all the rest of it. Even if somebody is like blind or Tzuruazov, that makes sense. But I'm talking about, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Merach Hashech and all these other sorts of things that you find. Shever, Ivera, Pisecho, Charmasura. Honestly, what's wrong with the coin? Who's Iver? Who's blind? Uh, today, as a matter of fact, it's very politically correct to say, just because someone has visual issues, as we would say today, doesn't necessarily mean that they're not fit to be a coin. It's a, a famous Shailin Halacha in the Shalas and Shuas literature. If someone has uh, this deformity or that one, can they be a Shlich Tzibur? I remember what's his name talks about this. Uh, you know, Etlinger, uh, you know, what is it called? Binyan Tzion. And the Marshal. I'm going by memory here. Uh, you know, they, they, they do question a person who has this problem or that problem. If someone today, for example, uh, uh, if, if for whatever reason, let's say the operation had lost a foot or something, whatever, uh, does that mean that they can't da mincha for the omit if if uh, they were saying Kaddish? You know, those sorts of questions. And there are two, two kinds of dynamics which are in existential tension, as I always like to say. There's the one that says, let the guy daven. There's the other one that says, don't let the guy daven. The one that says, let the guy daven. Think of the human being skill. And anyway, what does the quality of his prayer have to do with the fact that he lost a foot or a finger or a hand or something like that? Or whatever the particular deformity is. You understand? What's that got to do with anything? Suppose he had a big Tamil Chacham, and I'm sure this has happened, and a great Sadik, and unfortunately he went through some life experience or other. Was it an accident or whatever? It was in a war, Holocaust, and as a result... He has some kind of, uh, let's say, say, mum, physical deformity. Uh, but he's still a great scholar and exotic and all the rest of it. You wouldn't let him dominate for the Ahmed. You, you know what I'm saying? There's something wrong with his prayer. So obviously, as it's the when the Torah goes to great lengths in Pasha Semur, does it not? And even says, If teach your children this, usually caught in the but by Kohanim it's different. So obviously it makes a big deal. You know, God took the trouble to make all these rules and to go through them in some detail. Okay, uh, and Balmum is, is, is can cover the Avoda. So obviously, it's not simply, it's going by a different calculus. It's not saying this coin, and think about what I'm telling you, this is interesting. I'm not saying that this coin um, doesn't have the right piety or tzitkas or lishma. He does, but he's either a piseach, a charum, you know what I mean? He's got some physical business. So what does that mean? It's not on the individual, it's a tzibor. That's what it's telling you. Basically, what you're saying is that there's a tzibor side of things, and maybe that's not even the right word. There's the public display side of religion, and the, the, the trappings of formal religion, which, believe me, the Chumash goes into great detail. They have a Mishkan, they have a Avoda, they have a Karbana system. There's a lot of formal trappings of religion in the Old Testament. Get over it. Right now, in the uh, the Talmudic era, you're coming in the Gemara, which dominates the Jewish religion. The, the idea is different; it's a meritocracy. The idea is whoever's a bigger learner, you know, if I can use that expression, whoever's a bigger tzaddik, let's say that way, that become, person becomes the leader. Um, uh, which is just interesting. 
it's got to do with brains. And I would say that's like the more yeshivish way today. Whoever's a better learner, you know, gets, gets, gets ahead. Um, there are other counter uh, dynamics. In the Hasidic world, for example, a person is better learner, not going to be a Rebbe, you know, usually. One's a hereditary office, if I can use that expression. And the other one is a meritocracy, a meritocratic office. And these two dynamics are always uh, there. Perhaps it's so in every society. You understand? Every society, there's often assigned elites, formally by the system, and then there are those who uh, attain a kind of elite status through uh, merit, right? Through ability, through sheer ability. Uh, it's very interesting, the interplay. The whole emphasis that a coin who has physical deformities, things like that, shouldn't um, serve, has to do with the notion of public display. At least that's why I understand it. Uh, especially nowadays, when we're very politically correct, in a good way, and we're sensitive to people with physical issues, which we should be, which we should be. Especially nowadays, um, so, suppose I'm the Queen of England, and I'm, and I'm organizing who should be the, the Queen's guards, marching around the palace, that, especially the tourists come, you know, when they come to beef eaters or something. They want guys that are tall, dark, and handsome. They don't want people that are, you know, on crutches. Why? Really, it's not fair. The answer is, for the Queen's guards, you know, for, in other words, for, the, for this public display, you want a certain type. It's not a question of being prejudiced. It's what we, the requirements of the public display are that they have to look so, because you're, the, the, you're, the whole point is to make an impression, a visual impression. You see? Now, if we were having a physics conference, you wouldn't say, oh, the main people at the physics conference are the ones that are tall, dark, and handsome and would be admitted to the Queen's guards. It's to who's the biggest physicist. It's the biggest brains. Suppose you have a chemistry or something, you know, a, a Nobel Prize. The person could look like a jerk, right? They could have, they could, you know, they could have all kinds of things. They'd be a hunchback, whatever. It's got nothing to do with it. This person is the best chemist and wins the Nobel Prize. So you have these two dynamics. In Parshish more great emphasis is put on the public and physical side of the Kohanim. That's just interesting. And and we say over here, yeah, there is such a thing called the hereditary elite. <coughs> It, as I say, it's not everything in Judaism, but it's a very important part of Judaism, but it's dead today because we have no base of Middash. So, so much of the Chumash, especially Vayikra, is dead today in the sense, or it's in, it's it's hibernating, it's a better term, you know, until Mashiach comes, because we're not using it. So, uh, as again, I say, I'm a coin, uh, but uh, even though, as we all know, there's nothing for the coin to do, there's no base of Middash, but the restrictions are still there. I can't marry Grusha. Uh, that's always why I tell people uh, if if he complain about uh, you know the Jewish religion being uh, can't you know do's and don'ts and can'ts and harsh and all the rest of it, it's harsh for a coin. If 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 you want to think about it, uh, suppose a coin meets a girl who's a Grusha, uh, was married for a week. Uh, she's a great girl. He's a great guy. Uh, tough luck. See what I'm saying? Tough luck. Or Gioris, same thing. She could be a great girl. Gerd Sedek. Should be Gerd Sedek High Madrega. We have Shavuos coming up, uh, the Book of Ruth. It's all about Gerd Sedek. Al Tzadikim Al Chazidim Al Gerd Sedek. So a person's a Gerd Sedek. Why can't they marry a coin? It's obviously not a chisarn in their uh, spirituality. And the Ruchnius, the opposite of Gerd Sedek is a very high Madrega of Ruchnius. Doesn't matter. Can't marry a coin anyway. Right? Can't marry a coin anyway. So it's, uh, 
interesting the emphasis that we have in this parsha, uh, and it's the it's very interesting to me. That's the kind of thing that has to be drilled in the kids from a uh, young age. Emor v'amartes, we all know the first uh, Chazal, the first Rashi. You have to train your kids this way because it's not normal. Meaning, it's not something they would ordinarily get. Uh, everybody else can go to a funeral, and you, your family can't go to a funeral unless you're raised with it. You understand? Uh, which I always thought is a, is 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 a, a true statement. You know, because uh, if people are older and then they start to have all these restrictions, a lot of times they don't like it, they rebel against it. If you're trained from a youth, hopefully you'll get used to it, become part of who your family is. Uh, I'll say it again. So in this week's parsha, the highest madrig is the coin girl. In the Gemara, as we all know, Mamzer Tamachachem is Konam Le Kohen Girl, who's a Amaris. You can't get a more anti parsha and more statement than that. Here we're going to Kohen Gadol, Kohen Gadol, this and that, and the other who, Isha B'Psila Yikach, and all this stuff, and, you know, Nefesh Ba'amov, and yet, so in other words, it's all due to the fact uh, that the Kohen Gadol is supposed to be the, the big cheese. As a matter of fact, HaGadol Me'echav, God Le'e Mishel Echav, the Chazal say, they have to make sure he's a millionaire, they have to make a bitch, tall, dark, and handsome. I think a Kohen Gadol gets a haircut every day or something like that. <clears throat> Very often, always got to look just so. Uh, and yet, the Gemara is like this. You could have a coin goes on Mars. So there, when you have a coin goes on Mars, you have the, the personification of the difference of the approach of the Chumash on the one hand and of the Gemara on the other hand. Because from the Chumash point of view, he is a coin goal. And all these rules apply to him. From the Gemara's point of view, yeah, he's a coin goal, but, you know, the office in and of itself is not impressive. In other words, there are halachos involving what a coin goal does. And because of those halachas, we've got to follow the ritual. But really, 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 he's not chashev. You see, so the Jewish religion is so funny. We have these multiple and sometimes clashing, you know, sort of elite signals. And uh, uh, to my mind, Parshish Emmer is a wonderful example of this. And you can't get a better one than, as we all know, a Yuma. I think the Dafyomi, I believe now, is doing Yuma. I'm not into the Dafyomi, but they're doing Yuma. Everybody knows the famous thing. You have a coin girl from the Baishani period, obviously, and it says, um, "Keep him up at night." And if he and uh, if he knows how to read, you read with him. If he knows how to learn, you learn with him. If he doesn't, then uh, I forget. You know, you 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 keep him up some other way. Hold him for a second. Oh, if he doesn't know how to read, you read for him or something. You have a coin girl who doesn't know how to read, an illiterate coin girl. Yep, <laughs> could be. Now, you had that in Bayashani when the priesthood was, so to speak, corrupted. That's true. But nevertheless, the fact of the matter is, the guy was a coin goddle. In other words, he was from Aaron. And one way or another, he became the coin goddle. And now, it's Yuma, it's Yom Kippur time. And you have the Zikne based in or whatever. Uh, in other words, these are the rabbis. They represent the Talmudic tradition. And uh, the scholars are telling the coin goddle what to do. He has no idea because he can't read. So it's almost like uh, as I say, it's, it's a wonderful example of the paradox involved over here, that here's the top leader of the Jewish people. And he's the one who's going to get them all their, their mitzvahs, um, their averis atoned. And he can't read. So in other words, he's carrying out a ritual, but I don't believe that one of these high priests that were there by Yishani, of the type that are described in Yuma, who can't read, and very often they were stuffed in, you know, by the king or the Romans or something like that.
But nevertheless, he is the Kohen Gadol. So you're telling me this guy goes in the Kodesh Gadoshim as Mechaper for Klal Yisrael for all their Averas? The answer is yes. So you have over here a very paradoxical, I mean, you know, the, the whole Yom Kippur, when it was practiced in the old days, has this kind of paradoxical aspect to it, magical perhaps, in which a guy who's a, a dummy, again, a Mamzer Kohen Gadol would, would, would bench before him. Mamzer Tamachachim, I mean. Would bench before him, uh, or whatever. Uh, this Kohen Gadol, he's going in and doing the 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 Ketoris, and he is uh, uh of the Kapora for Klali throw. It's like unbelievable. I, and we all know again, since it's Yuma time, that you know they have to make him swear not to do the Ketoris wrong and all the rest of it. Uh, my goodness, my goodness. So Yom Kippur especially the way it's described in the Masefta Yuma, brings out, you know, this, um, I don't know if paradox is the right word, but you see, you know, the sharp difference between the notion of the hereditary elite and the others. Because at the end of the day, no matter what you say, the biggest Talmud in the world cannot do the Avoto. So the base of Migdash is not, because he's not a coin. So the, assuming he's not. So um, so take yourself back to the Bayashani period. And take yourself back to the time of Yuma. And let's say you had somebody like, I don't know, the Rama Gamliel or somebody like that, Hazaking. And here's Rama Gamliel telling the Kohen Gadol, uh, this is what you do for Yom Kippur here, there. Uh, you don't understand what I'm saying, but just do it. Make sure, memorize that you do it. So why isn't Rama Gamliel doing it? He's the one who should be leading the Kapar of Klai That's how we would organize it. Nowadays, you'd think so. Well, it's not so simple. There's always going to be, in a sociology aspect, uh, in human dynamics, it's not my field, but I have a little bit of knowledge. You know, uh, in sociology, you're always going to have this contention between you know different types of elites, hereditary elites on the one hand, who are into public show and display and form- formality, and that kind of thing. The formality being the way that they kind of guard their special status, versus the meritocratic elites who say, "I don't need all those extra ceremonies, all the rest of it. I can uh, attain elite status." by virtue of my abilities in whatever particular field it's in, okay? In whatever particular field it's in. And, you know, society's running both, okay? Here in the U.S., we have a funny system, but it just reflects, you know, the clash of these two sorts of things. You have elections. So basically, the theory behind the elections is the meritocracy. I know we don't get the best person for president, but the theory is you're putting them up there and you should. That's the idea of election. Otherwise, you wouldn't have elective leadership. You'd have, uh, like Plato, you have, you know, the uh, either not hereditary, you'd have uh, elites choosing the leaders. You understand? Which they try to do in this country anyway. But, uh, uh, you know, to choose the best person. So on the one hand, it's a meritocratic appointment. And then the other hand, once the person is elected, they go to the White House, they play hail to the chief, they give them the Marine Band, they have all the panoply and all the display for four years. For four years. And so you try to give them the, the the look of a hereditary elite. But, you know, it's 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 a mishmash. So you get a Trump, you get a Biden, and, you know, there's all mishmash with all that. In the Jewish religion, long ago, you had a priestly elite. Just get over it. Uh, what was the role of Chachamim in the time of the Tanakh? It's a great question. Um, there were Chachamim, but I'm only saying that because our Messiah tells us so. Uh, you don't see it in the Chumash. Uh, uh, let me rephrase that. You don't see it in the Nach. Uh, you see Nevi'im. Um, you never see rabbis. 
Chachamim. Uh, at least offhand, I can't think of a case in Yeshua Shotim Shmuel Malachim and Daniel. We have Chachamim. Um, you got to wait till Ezra, and Ezra's position is not 100% clear either, but he sort of is, sort of. Uh, Ezra Sofer and so forth. But all the other times you have Kohanim, you have Melachim, you have tribal leaders and, and, and aristocrats who usually screw things up. There were bad news in, in, in the history of the Jews. Uh, where are the rabbis? You know, where, where, where the Talmud Where Where's the Sanhedrin's? Uh, if you look very minutely, you can discern here or there. And again, some of like the Dersh Rishonim, which you can find in our Victor Miller books, you know, you, you you can, you know, I remember they said, you know, the, the, whoever the king was, it didn't, he didn't, he only killed the murderers and not their families because he's following Tereshavah Peh, uh, you know, once in a while, but not. for a long time, the Jewish people were run by hereditary elites. And there's a natural tendency on part of the seaboard that people have a certain deference towards hereditary elites. Sometimes they don't, but, you know, typically they do. <clears throat> um, in the throughout Jewish history down till today, to my mind, there's a, as they say, an existential tension and a constant tension between, you know, the desire for at least to attain hereditary status and operate that way versus the counter of, you know, meritocracy trying to break through the artificial barriers established by the would-be hereditary elites. Now, I'm not talking about the Kohanim and the Chumash, because that's not Chumash. That's what God said. But other than that, you'll always find, uh, take, for example, uh, the institution of the rabbinate, Rabbanim. Uh, I always try to explain to my students, and you know this very well, a rabbi is not a clergyman. A Kohen in the time of the Bible was a clergyman. A clergyman means somebody who's necessary for them to perform a religious service, religious ritual. You cannot do a carbon without a coin, like I said before. You cannot do the Mycium Kipper without a coin, even if you have to get an illiterate, as I pointed out. So that's, you know, uh, a clergy person, correct? Uh, you know, it's necessary for performance of certain religious rituals. But as we all know, ever since the base of Mages destroyed, there's no clergy people, not that I can think of. So you can make a minion without a rabbi. You can get married and buried and married and divorced and everything for baby naming, whatever you want. You don't need a rabbi. So the position of rabbi, which is the position that popped up in Jewish history, which emerged very slowly but clearly after the Kormen Beis Amigdash, when the laws of Emor, at least the ritual laws, a lot of them fell into the suetude. So... I mean, you can't have each charuma, sarua, merach, ashak. I mean, there's no base of Megish anymore. So when the base of Megish was destroyed, there emerged a, a, a meritocracy kind of leadership called scholars. And they're just, their authority is not institutional, but it's charismatic. It's not immoral kohanim. It's charismatic. And the charisma consists of the perceived scholarship. That's what it is. And uh, therefore, the term rabbi literally meant someone with some amount of knowledge of Gemar, to use modern terminology. If you know a little bit of Gemar, you're a little rabbi. You know a lot of Gemar, you're a big rabbi. 
And that's all it was. So, as a scholar, as we know, over the course of time, when the base is not there and the Kohanim couldn't do what they were doing anymore, so this group emerged as, for better or worse, the elites. Um, the Judaic elite, let's put it that way. You always had the money elite, the Gvirim, but that's not enough. No, nobody survives that way. So as a, as a group, you need the religious, the Judaic elite. Uh, over the course of time, there was, there was a definite tendency for the uh, Rabbonim, for the scholars, to, t- to kind of uh, gel into a kind of, a kind of hereditary elite like the Kohanim. Right? And there are halachas in the Shulchan Aruch about Tamei Chacham and Rabbanim by the time you get to the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, and you have such you know, discussions in the Gemara. It's taken from there. But also a lot from post-Talmudic. Uh, you know, in your day, I'm talking about. And um, there was a clear tendency for the position of the rabbi to eventually become kind of institutionalized in the communal rabbinate, what they call it, you know, the Albazins. And that's a function that, that kind of developed over the course of Jewish history. And so what does that mean? The the scholar is becoming a kind of a priest. Not the same way, but it's becoming a, a, a fixed and formal office. Someone who's an Albazin, that was like a certain position. And his functions are not to run Carbonas, but nevertheless he has certain official functions. And they're developed over the course of time a kind of a Ritual and protocol among Rabbanim. This you do, this you don't do. They dress a certain way, they act a certain way. Uh, which again, are not hard-wired like you have the Kohanim and Pasha Zemar, but they kind of develop. The rabbis dressed, as they say before, a certain way, and a certain type of uh, uh, image they had of the Rabbanim. And people, Taka, brought them Trumas and Maestris. Not literally Trumas and Maestris. But in other words, I'm talking about other than the salary, people brought them gifts and things like that throughout Jewish history uh, in one form or another. Check out the Yavain Metzula when he talks about how they used to stuff them with all kind of gifts before the Chmelnitsky time. The counter to the rabbi, the official rove, which became like a hereditary sort of thing, semi-hereditary, I don't mean that it passed down to the son. That, as you know, is a big issue in the history of Jewish law. And, you know, in other words, is the Rabbonus a position for Yerusha or not? The Chassam Sofer and the others. That's always a, a fight. Uh, but I'm talking about in the formal nature of the office. Okay? The formal nature of the office. And, um, whew, you know, the the, um, the this would represent sort of like the priests. And who was the other side? The meritocracy in that situation? Rosh Hashiva, <laughs> right? The Rosh Hashivas. In other words, because the Rosh Hashivas is purely a meritocratic situation. Used to be, right? Uh, once upon a time, they didn't have yeshivas like they have nowadays, which are formal institutions that when the head dies, somebody else takes it over. But it's a totally personal kind of thing. You'd have somebody who's a Rosh Hashiva. He attracted people or didn't. And when he left or died or something like that, the place fell apart and the students would go to somebody else to whom they were charismatically attracted. So, just because a guy's a Rosh Hashiva and his son is his son doesn't automatically mean he's going to be ahead of the Yeshiva if he doesn't have the same kind of personal, attractive draw that the father had. That's how it went century after century in Jewish history. And so, 
the two sides, who replaced the coin? Dav Basin. And who replaced the scholar? Uh, the Rosh Hashivas. Uh, it's an interesting example. I'm not doing justice to it, but I'm just informing you because I don't think most people realize this. Uh, and then what happened? Uh, comes the modern era and uh, the position of the rabbi, it's kind of still there, but not the same way uh, because the Basins collapsed as an institution. It was replaced by the local synagogue rabbi. Local synagogue rabbi is hard to say. He's like a coin, you know. Uh, but the Rosh Hashiva ship, in my time, in your time, has become like a formal office like Kohanim. You pass it down to the son. There are big fights in the yeshiva. Who gets the next position? There's a coin, Gadol Me'echov. It's, you know, it's, a, it's become a hereditary position. And, of course, the Hasidim came up with the Rebbe, which is a new concept that never existed. Obviously, you know, before before the modern Hasidic movement, there was such thing as a Rebbe, right? And that's mom is totally hereditary. And uh, that's that, that's a kind of a coin girl. I mean, it's like a coin position. You understand? Now, you know, mutatis mutandis, obviously, things are not there. It's not the same way. Um, but nevertheless, you're dealing with an office, which is, uh, you know, Lahazar Agdol Malakatan. You have to raise him from the young age to be to fill this position. And uh, it's, it is a hereditary elite. You understand? In uh, extreme situations, you can have, I'm not going to say it's like a dummy coin guttle in Yuma, but you definitely had in Jewish history, maybe contemporary, they could have a rabbi who's, who's a young guy. I mean, Europe used to happen all the time. The father died, you know, and, and, they got, and, and the new rabbi is 15, 16, 17 years old or whatever, sometimes younger. Uh, and they'll, you know, the chassidim will, will uh, follow him uh because of because of because he's the son of the previous coin guttle if I can use that terminology. So all I'm trying to get across is that you've seen Pashas Emor uh sort of personification or maybe the crystallization of the idea of the hereditary elite. And all the rules you can't marry this one, the daughter of a coin who is Mizana gets an extra hard punishment. Uh you you are restricted you can't go to the funeral you have to stay free from all kinds of tumah. There's tumah's mikdash v'kadashah that we have in this week's parsha, and all the other things that go along with the first half of parsha's emor are um, reflective of this this very specific kind of of elitism. Um, it doesn't talk about the rules of a uh, of a talmud kacham, uh, which is just interesting. You understand? Um, it doesn't talk about. Uh, let's put it this way: the greatest scholar in the world could marry a gear. Right, the greatest scholar in the world doesn't have to. Marry. I mean, uh, I think Rabbi Kiva didn't he marry a Gilras at one point? Uh, off the top of my head, what's wrong? You know, the greatest uh, scholar in the world doesn't have all these restrictions. Is he blind? There are many of the Tanaim Amaraim, certainly Amaraim, come to mind who are blind. You understand? You know, or had this problem or that problem. Didn't didn't have nothing to do with anything. So what? You see. Uh, so he didn't say it's a mum, it's a this, that, the other, because they're not the Queen's Guard. They're not, um, you know, the formal representatives of the Tibor. They're not running a Mishkan. Um, it's a meritocracy. That's the, the, the source of their um, charisma, the source of their power, whatever you want to call it, is their knowledge and their and their, their hanhaga. Because one without the other is no good. I mean, if you have a person who's a big scholar and is, is a bad person, it's no good. <clears throat> 
then you wouldn't say he's a scholar. Or would you? Or would you? Now, with the Kohen, it's funny business. We have Chafni and Pinchas. They were Kohanim, and they were in, 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 in on the job, you know, the sons of Eli, but they weren't acting the right way. Did that mean they're not Kohanim anymore? Uh, all we're told is that you will one day lose your Kohanim in the future, which they eventually were killed in battle. And the family, by the time you get to Eviasa and all that, lost it. Totally. But uh, when they were doing all these bad things, to describe the meaning of Shmuel, they still were Kohanim, because it's a hereditary office. A Kohen's a Kohen no matter what. If I were living in time based in Migdash, and I was doing Gila Raj Vodazora, and Machal Shabbos and everything, well, then I couldn't serve. But if I stopped, then I could. You know, coins are coin. You can't lose your kahuna. You know what I mean? You can't lose your kahuna. Uh, and so all this, I guess, reflects the notion that there's metziuses of Kedusha out there, I suppose, hypostases, uh, metziuses of Tuma out there, um, certain types of Jews uh, have, you know, uh, perhaps different spiritual makeups, shall we say, a coin seems to have such a spiritual makeup. It seems, anyway, that uh, you know Manga Gioris would be a would be antithetical to that. Uh, I don't know exactly how, but you know that 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 seems to be the message over here, as opposed to others, who, as I say before, if they are, um, you know, Talmi um, Chacham, if 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 their knowledge and their actions, their hanhogas, the way they conduct themselves is the right way, all these other things don't matter so much. In fact, they don't matter at all. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Now, of course, where I'm going with this is the following. What happened in the course of Jewish history? The Michigan didn't last so long. The base on Michigan didn't last so long. That's funny. Eventually it was destroyed. And so, it's really weird. For the majority of Jewish history now, uh, Kohanim, what shall I say? Kohanim have been out of a job. Uh, it's funny. Today's Parsha has all these rules about Kohanim, so do other places. It sounds like it's a fundamental institution of Judaism. And here you are, somebody like me, uh, we've been out of a job for a very long time. Uh, what am I supposed to do with a Kohen? Uh, the only thing you can do is join the other elite. We have X number of great Talmudic Chacham who are Kohanim. Right? I mean, the Chavaz Chaim and the come to mind just off the top of the head, many others. But their uh, charisma, their authority, their 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 ruchnius was not a function of them being kohanim. Right? So it's funny; it's not a function of them being kohanim. So we pray for a base of Migdash, and then it'll go back to the other way. But then it's going to be funny. Here is standing somebody, you know, like Rabosha Feinstein. Here is standing some yachts. Uh, he happens to be a kohen, nice guy, you know, nice guy, from guy. You're not comparing him to Shlom Zarba, to the Vilna Gong. Okay. And this guy can do the Avoda. And the other one, the Vilna Gong standing there, he can't do the Avoda. It's a, it's it's going to be a strange uh, situation. Because you and I have lived so long in a Jewish world, which reflects kind of the Geisha world in the sense that the general trend in the Geisha society, particularly in Western society you live, is precisely the uh, collapse of hereditary elites and the replacement by um, meritocratic elites. There was a time in, in the West 
This is true around the world, to be perfectly honest. But I'm just thinking, because you and I live in Western society, there's a time in the West where everything was run by the arist aristocracy. You know, life was organized around them. And uh, if you were just born in the right family, you just had a better life and a better mahalach than, um, than the others. And that was written into law. Now, in America, they're trying to make, you know, for political reasons to get money, they're trying to say just being white makes you a member of the aristocracy. That's current cultural politics. But there really was, in the old days, not in America, this country was founded on different principles, but in Europe, for example, the notion that there's certain people born to elite families, and they own the land, and they own the people, and they get to make the decisions, and all the rest of it. But as we know, with the modern era, um, that kind of disintegrated, and instead you have different types of elites, more or less, more or less meritocratic. Uh, the Jewish religion has gone the same direction, which is just interesting. The Jewish religion has also gone in the direction that our leaders, our people, have to prove themselves. You, you say this person's a gadol. I'm why you go? What makes you a gadol? You say, well, look, what he knows how to learn. Lowy, look how he conducts himself. All right, that's a different story. So we're no longer dealing with somebody because he's a bnei Aaron or bnei so and so that automatically makes you great. Now again, with the Hasidim, it's not so simple because you have the idea that this person was the son of the previous rebbe, and you know it's, it's more complicated. Uh, but nevertheless, and the Hasidic movement is flourishing, right? It's flourishing. So uh, I just leave you with these ideas. Uh, maybe you'll have want to discuss this on Shabbos. I'm serious, you know. Uh, how do we conduct ourselves today with these two models? The one that is given so much attention is Parsha Zemmor, which the Kohanim, which represent hereditary elites, with all the rules and regulations associated with public display elites, have to be tall, dark, and handsome, can't have mum, can't marry this, can't do that, um, got to be super makbun and tahara, stay away from all the uh, uh, ugly stuff, the dead stuff. That's one kind of elite. And then you have the other kind, of, you know, so what you might say exemplary elite. And then you have the other elite, which is the guys that are schlump looking. Uh, you, you see this all the time, at least I see it all the time. The guy don't look like nothing special, uh, but then he opens his mouth, and he says, oh, he's a bucky bashas, he knows a velt. And all of a sudden, this person, who you didn't think was anything prepossessing, you have a completely different opinion of him. Okay. You know, I thought, you know, he didn't have a tie. He's just sitting there, you know, all schlumped up. And then, my goodness, you know, he starts to, to, to talk. You see, he knows everything, right? If you have a child, he's the guy you want to talk to. If you have a problem learning, he's the one you want to talk to. That's, that's the other kind of elite. So which do you prefer? That's a good question to have at the Shabbos table. Which do you prefer? The Cohen model uh, on the one hand, or shall we say the scholar model on the other hand? And uh, how does it work in your particular community? Again, these are just a couple of ideas that I think are pertinent to uh, the way we live today. Um, and I think that they, uh, you know, uh, are very uh, relevant uh, to our kinds of discussions. And with that, I once again thank the Feinkechs, and I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.